Well, really excited you're here, week three of Easter, and uh, through, throughout the season of Eastertide and Pentecost, we are walking through this guy named Paul who wrote large portions of the New Testament. We're walking through his letter to a church in the city of Colossae way back in the first century, and really excited to do this. And I think I said last week, you know, one of the things we've really done over the last several years is hit these epistles, these letters from Paul and much of the New Testament, kind of walking slowly through them. So throughout the year, we'll do like more cultural critique type of stuff in our teaching and series that are around that. But it's also really beautiful to slow down a little and just take some time, kind of almost line by line, verse by verse, slowly walking through things as a way for us to kind of immerse what God is saying to his people. And so with that, we kind of launched this last week and kind of built a, a bit of a foundation. We haven't spent a ton of time on Paul, per se, because if you've been around the community for a while, we've now gone through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, now Colossians, and other stuff. So I think we have a foundation for most of us who this guy is. And now what we're trying to do is kind of wade ourselves into the letter and what he's trying to communicate. Now, at the heart of this letter is the reality, and we don't talk a lot about this in our moment, especially in our church, but one of the things Paul is pressing against as we get into the the early kind of encouragement and this poem that we're going to read today is Paul is pushing against false teaching. This is what he's doing. Now, maybe it's part of my personality and part of the way we've decided to go about things here, There isn't a lot, at least in my own teaching, a lot of pushback on other things kind of out there Um, when it comes to like teaching. And I know there's like some preacher dudes and people that like they just love to push on everybody else's theology. And that's not been as much as much my thing. At the same time, one of the things we have to grapple with a little bit is when Paul is instructing these early communities in the ancient Mesopotamian, he is pushing back often against things that are trying to kind of bleed into the church theology-wise. Like this, we have to grapple and wrestle a little bit. This is a thing. And so if there's, if there's good and kind of like constructive teaching in theology, it also means in their time and probably in ours, there's some false teaching and some things that would be antithetical or counter the way of Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here early on, you with me? Hanging in there? You all right? Does it make sense? What Paul is doing here is helping this church with some of the cultural shifts in the moment. Now, there's a little bit of a difference because they have very little history in their moment, right? I mean, it's Jesus is the Messiah. These churches are typically meeting in homes. There's not 2,000 years or more of equity that we have. We have some people that have gone before us, church mothers, church fathers, that have helped us in some of the cultural things now that we engage, but I still think it's it's, uh, pertinent for us to kind of keep it in that framework, okay? So now with that said, open your Bibles if you want or fire them on, because it now is 2023 and this seems to be a reality. Where are my people, paper people at? We got a couple paper people. You, you don't even have a phone, man, or anything, so it's all good. It's all good. You can just listen, okay? Um, that's my kid, by the way. I would not talk to your kid that way. That's my kid. So just, just so you know, I have, I have much respect for my, my kids, but probably even more for your own, so your own. It's good. Um, what we're going to read here, most 
uh, credible scholars now think that this is a poem or a hymn that the early churches would actually sing in their community. Um, what's fascinating, as, as much as this is new, a lot of things in the early churches were circulated. And there is a lot of, I think, good ideas around the fact that the subject of what we're going to kind of engage here is actually a poem, right? Or something that they, like a hymn-like statement that they would kind of sing together in their community. Now, before we read it, there should be something to, that needs to be said about singing as the church community. And I think we just need to take a little pause here before we read it and say that this is actually really, it's fascinating to me that this ends up in our Bibles. And for most of us, we read about the supremacy of Christ, we nod our heads because of the flannel board we grew up with in Sunday school, and we just go, yeah, this is it. But if we lose the reality of this actually being a song or a hymn, I think we miss something. There's actually something really powerful, and in a way, count, and we've talked about this, counterformative about singing together. Um, I know in our culture now, more and more, this is less of a thing, like collective singing. Certainly there's concerts and there's pubs and, you know, shows and all that, and that's, this obviously is still prevalent in our moment, but we sing less and less together, yet there's something that happens in and through a song or a poem or a hymn that doesn't happen through a teaching or a sermon, right? So I think about, like, think about it. You will not go and regurgitate word for word what I'm going to say here this morning, right? <laughs> I obviously have that realization that that's not going to happen. But what will happen is even in the way our brains are wired, we will go, many of us, with what we just did here this morning in singing, and we will go, and we will repeat, this will be on our mind and our heart all throughout the week. There's something powerful about phrases and stanzas and things that we repeatedly sing over and over. Um, and you know this, we're shaped by music in, in our culture and in our moment. Even deeper is... Paul would actually say in other places in his writing that actually evidence of you and I being filled with the Spirit is what? Singing. That actually making music and singing together is actually evidence that you are in the way of Jesus. It's one of those things when we bring our lives and we sing together that there's something, something there. Paul even says, he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Word of the day right there, Sesame Street. It's good, debauchery with a D. Um, instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to, another, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing, everybody, and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is evidence for Paul that one of the ways we're filled with the Spirit, one of the evidences of that is that we sing together. I always say you can't be filled with the Spirit if you're filled with the Spirit. <laughs> oh, that was, that, was, that was good. And don't get me wrong, I, I think most of you know that, uh, yeah, anyways, I, things can be enjoyed, um, but there is this thing that Paul leans into that as you come and shape your lives together, music is shaping every culture and there's a counterformation when we sing together. Even Israel, when you look at their story, it's so bizarre 
because when they would get into battle, most of their instruction was like, walk around a city and then like sing to God. <laughs> Just like the weirdest ways in which anybody would enter into this. And so singing has always been a part of uh, the people of God and, and Israel's story and now the church. Um, with all that said, Here's the poem, here's the song. Listen to what is shaped in Paul's language here as he brings this. Verse 15, the son, Jesus, he says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and all things have been created for him. He is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him he was to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, singing this. I won't sing it, but here it is. Verse 21. Once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So imagine getting together with your house church and this is something that you are embodying. You are singing and speaking together. And again, the counterformative even practice of saying the Psalms together, everything we're trying to do here is intentional. The thing I want to drill in in this poem and, and what kind of comes to the surface is oh, well, a few things, but one major thing. And it's right here in the text, right here in, in what is before us, and it's this. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that may not hold, it, like, I get it. If you've been around this thing, that may not hold a lot of weight but this reality here, that Jesus the Son is now the image of the invisible God, is massive. It has a lot, it has heavy implications because it has implications on how we think, how we live. It has implications, and we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning. It has implications on how you and I interpret the scriptures because of this reality that Jesus is now what we see God is like. And that's ultimately the reality here is if you want to know what God is like, I know people have all sorts of opinions and especially from the Old Testament, all sorts of opinions and ideas of what God is like. But over and over, the New Testament writers would say, if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Close, close. We'll talk at lunch, but close. You look to Jesus. 
It takes all the muddiness sometimes that we see and feel and it takes a lot of the questions that you and I maybe have, even things we see that kind of evolve throughout the story of Israel and we put it on one person and we look into the life and to the teachings of one person and his name is Jesus. You out there. So a lot of us, I mean, maybe rub shoulders with people that look at the God of the Bible and are like, how can I reconcile anything with this? Because did you know that polygamy is biblical? Just saying, it's there. And slavery and capital punishment, you could say, is biblical. You're like, we're getting into this today. It, it, this will help us as we look to Jesus. What about war and violence and this, this retaliation kind of culture that you read throughout the Old Testament law. Well, that, my friends, in the Bible of Jesus' day, that was biblical. So what do, we, what do we do with that? Do we shape and frame our mind around that? Or do we take Paul's word seriously here that the way in which we understand and look to, Jesus, uh, look, look to God and who he is is by seeing Jesus as the image of the invisible God, right? So I'm pushing here a little just to show you that everything now on this side of the cross should be interpreted through the lens of Jesus. You know, even when you read, and this has been significant and central to our own community, Jesus has a sermon that he, he teaches, several teachings called the Sermon on the Mount, And one of the things we're big on here is if we want to kind of know truth and understand who Jesus is or who God is and where the world is going, we look through the lens and the teachings of Jesus. And so this is why the Sermon on the Mount is central for us because Jesus even does this thing where he kind of gives the antithesis, the antithesis of some of the things that we see in the Old Testament law. Nod your head if you're with me. Are you with me? There are things in the Old Testament law that we read about, in particular certain things around, again, violence and some of the things we've talked about. Where, what does Jesus say? What does he say when he addresses these things? You've heard that it was said. Now I say to you. The way the gospel writers would talk about this is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the law. Now, the law is not a bad thing. It was actually a boundary around Israel, and it was, it was in many ways a beautiful thing. Just think about the, the, the moment in time and the culture that this law came into. It helped give them a structure and a framework, and yet Jesus is now giving his own interpretation and giving the antithesis of many of these things. And so, even with things like violence, the, one of the reasons very much I take a nonviolent posture in theology and life is because Jesus gave a redefinition of violence. Lex talionis in the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what does Jesus say? Gives this nonviolent type of way in which we respond to others. So you're picking up what I'm putting down. There are things in the Old Testament, especially, that are biblical. You could say they're biblical, but one of the questions we want to, what we want to ask, is it Christ-like? Is it God-image-like? How we know what God is like now on this side of the cross is we look to Jesus. Some of you have like been around this thing for a while and you hear pastors and preachers all the time say, it's all about Jesus. Guys, it's, 
It's all about Jesus. I wish I could just like razzle dazzle you to death with theology, but it's, this is all about Jesus. And so it shapes a few things for us. One of the things it shapes is how we, again, read and interpret. I would really encourage you in your own formative practices, I encourage every single person in this room to at least once in your life read through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I think it's important, especially so much talk around doubt, and I get it, and like in our cultural moment, things that are maybe people find weird with the Bible and they push against, and then I'll ask people, like, have you read it from cover to cover? And I love when I ask that question because people's eyes just get big. Like, sometimes we have critiques around things we don't read, and even with my own kids, and we're failing at times here, but would love them to take them through the Bible um, at least once. But I also think there's, there's formative practices where we would also read and engage the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount more regularly. So, everything, I think, is inspired in the Scriptures, but there probably is a little bit of a difference about, like, between things like not boiling a goat in its mother's milk, right? And have you heard this? This is like a law in the Old Testament. Like, it's there. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Or some of the genealogies that you read through Old Testament characters. Those things are in there for a reason. They're in there for a reason, and they are inspired. But when we want to look at the revelation of God, what we want to be doing is engaging Jesus. And certainly to understand Jesus, you have to read the Old Testament, but a lot of where we want to put our time and our attention is in the Gospels. I encourage people all the time, regularly read through the Gospels uh, in, in the year, throughout the, throughout the calendar year. And I would say one of the things we all, I would encourage all of us to do in light of this, understanding that Jesus is what God is like. Jesus is God, but it shows us what God is like, is to read the Sermon on the Mount regularly. I would encourage some of us in this room to actually to memorize the Sermon on the Mount as a way to just keep before us that Jesus and everything that he embodies is the image of the invisible God. And so there's all sorts of important things in the Old Testament and there's things we wrestle through, but ultimately it's leading us to the uh, fulfillment of that, fulfillment of that, and that is, that is Jesus. I also think, with all the questions our culture has about God, the thing that sets us apart is we point to Jesus with the questions, right? So, um, I, I mentioned at Easter, you know, like the, the, kind of the posture, I don't believe in God, right? Cool. You can hold to that, that's wonderful and that's good, but sometimes I think some of us fear that when we actually engage these type of things, we're like, it's like, sometimes we think like it's, it's a kind of, we feel almost straw man when we come to things in the Bible because we wrestle through it, not realizing that I am sitting here and one of the reasons I'm sitting here is because there are people, legitimate people, that experienced the resurrection of Jesus in bodily form and passed it on, Right? 500 people, you gotta, like, it doesn't matter who you are, you have to wrestle that across the board, we know that Jesus of Nazareth lived. And secondly, we ha just have to wrestle with, there are things, and I'm not like an apologist by any means, but there are things that are passed on to us 
around Jesus raising from the dead, that this is not like some far out concept or idea. And obviously if you're a Christian, you know this. There's billions of people, maybe, I don't know how many, but lots of people will gather today across the world to engage this story. But one of the things we will always wanna keep before us in what we often read in the Old Testament context, we want to read it through the lens of Jesus. It's almost like one of the best ways we can do this is by interpreting backwards. Interpret everything you see and experience through Jesus and the cross. You with me? You out there? That's just my little rant. Maybe it didn't come across as a rant. Maybe it did. But I think this is, this is very important when we talk about questions and doubts and like what some of the uncomfortable things that we see, some of it's uncomfortable. And God accommodated with people along the way but the climax and the point that we get to is Jesus. And you and I are not wandering nomads in the ancient world trying to figure this out and waiting for a Messiah. Guys, he's come. He showed us the way. Woo, come on. Yeah, I like that. Can we just all go woo? Yeah, right? I like that. Come on. A little bit of expression at Praxis Church. It's like revival. This is great. Woo, whoa. I like that one too. That was good. We have on display, and listen, that doesn't take away questions and doubts, but when we, when, we, when we interpret it through that lens and we see that Jesus is the image of God, what is God like? Well, we know, because we see it in the life of Jesus. And so some of you just need, again, to grapple with the Sermon on the Mount and some of the radical upside-downness, again, around love of neighbor and on violence, around prayer, um, all sorts of different things that are shaped within the teaching around anger, right, and adultery, all these things that are in here that show a completely counter way of living. This is what it is. And so as the church in Colossians is pushed and pressed with some cultural things in their moment, and in particular this bro named Caesar who wants allegiance, who wants everybody's attention, it's a reminder for us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And this is the thing that the church sang early on. I'll also point out that always on Paul's lips is that not as only is Jesus the image of God, the image of the invisible God, not only is he showing us what God is like, but Jesus reconciles us to the Father. And this is not I think you can speak of what we've just talked about in interpretation and, and our view and image of God in, on one hand, and then we can also continue to remind ourselves the way that we're brought back to God is through death and resurrection. That you and I can have access to forgiveness and grace. And we've been brought into relationship with God because the Messiah, King Jesus, put on display what God is like for us. And so this is why we look to Jesus even for what it means in forgiveness. There was a way in the Old Testament of uh, dealing, obviously, in the temple and tabernacle and through, through animal sacrifice dealing with sin. You and I are now reminded on this side that that is not the way that there is in Hebrews. The vision and image is that Jesus is this final sacrifice and he is the one through death and resurrection that draws us and brings us in. Just read his words, guys. The image of God, the hope, the forgiveness, the love, the drawing us into him. 
the call to allegiance and to trust and to faithfulness, all of it, this is what God is like. Read, read the red letters spilling off the pages of scripture that show us that God came in like the lowliest of places. No golden fleece diapers, no chariots leading him in to his birth procession or whatever. He comes in a, a barn, in a stable, in the lowliest of ways right? Runs for his life as a refugee. Grows up in the backwoods. As a stonemason, we think, a carp, probably, you know, I know this word carpenter is used a lot, but in the ancient world, it was all about stone and using his hands and his feet every single day. Never wrote a book, never traveled much more than the size of London, Ontario. This is how God came to us. This is the image of God. To think, you know, sometimes there's talk about empathy within the church community. We have a God that empathizes, that came as our own makeup, our own, the way flesh and blood came into our story, and he reconciles us to God. Come on. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He reconciles us. And then I love Paul's language here, always giving kind of this hope to the future, right? So not only is the, this image and the reconciliation piece, but Jesus is the hope of our faith. Let me read it one more time. We're gonna come to the tables. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies, but now you're reconciled by Christ's physical body through death, and listen to this, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and you're free from accusation. And listen to what Paul says, verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which, Paul, I have become a servant. There is hope in this reconciling project. And I love how Paul not only brings about kind of reconciliation in this, but if you stand firm in your faith, you're saved. But brothers and sisters, always before him was the reality of new creation. We will be saved. We are moving somewhere. And so what it says to us, just like this little church in, you know, and by the way, I think I said last week, Colossae, compared to all the other contemporary letters in the New Testament, is like a little backwoods town. I love it. You know, big city Ephesus, big city, you know, Harbor City, Corinth, Sailor City, and then you have Colossae, the little guy. Paul is always pushing forward to hope. Everything you and I, and they're singing this, everything you and I experience in this moment in the sense of like the pain and suffering that we endure will be wiped away. We are saved, we're being saved, and there's this push towards the reality of heaven will smash back into earth and every, every ounce, every, everything wrapped up in the curse will be lifted. It gets me thinking, I was, um, in 2008 I ran my first marathon and um, I was in my mid-20s and just, you know, thought, who really needs to train for a marathon? By the way, a marathon is like 44 kilometers. Um, and so I was, I was running every day, um, just as kind of, yeah, it's what I did. I like long-distance running, but had never put more than 10 or 12 kilometers together. So I, in my 25-year-old head, I'm like, it's just four of my runs together, right? Right? That's how it goes. Just... 
Easy, right? 10Ks in 45, 50 minutes, it'll be just under four hours, it'll be great. And so I didn't even like really, I wasn't even conscious of the socks and shoes I wore. And for some of you know that I've like participated in marathons. Um, that's a thing. I didn't do some of the appropriate things that you do, um, like put Vaseline on your chest and different things that you're supposed to do if you run long terms. And you're like, that's a thing? That's a thing. I did not put Vaseline on certain areas of my body so that, you, you with me? And I just showed up in my like Nikes, my basketball shorts, and away we went. And guys, the first 12 kilometers were amazing. I was like blowing by people and, um, and then we get to like kilometer 20 and kilometer 20 is when you looped back from the north end of the city and you go back through where you started because the smart people pick the half option, right? So you actually run with them, finish the half and then you keep going. And I remember running through down Dufferin, right, right by Central High School there on the park and realizing in my brain, I've got like a second half to do of this. The compound on my body, like over and over, not, never putting more than 12, whatever, 15 kilometers together. And it just, it hit me. And so I move into a posture of like walking and trying to run and like uh, feeling every pain you can feel in your body, including missing, putting Vaseline on certain areas of my body, okay? And... I'm stumbling and I have this goal of like four hours and it's like four and a half hours long and I am in Springbank Park, which is not close to downtown. And I'm running and, you know, the epitome of fitness at 25, I have people that at the time were my grandparents' age running by me, running by me. And I stumbled to the finish line eventually, I did do it. And... I'll never forget, there was this lady who was close to my grandma's age and we got talking after. And this was like her 30th marathon or something. And she said to me, uh, we got talking about this experience. She said to me, it's not about whether or not there's going to be pain. It's how you manage it. It's not about whether or not in this, if you're gonna run a marathon, there is going to be pain. Doesn't matter how old you are, you're 25 or you're 60. It's all about pain management. For 30 marathons, learning and understanding and knowing and kind of growing in maturity in that practice and in that discipline. That pain is coming. It's all about how you manage it. And I wonder, you know, I just wonder, that's stuck with me for like the last 15 or whatever years. Is this not a picture of what it is for you and I? Paul always ties in hope to our own story, knowing that there's going to be pain. You're going to feel like, uh, for a church community, you're going to feel like you're on the margins, right? This little house church in a city or cities throughout that world. He knows some of the things we're going to experience as humans, whether it's Maybe persecution on, on one hand, but also the day-to-day -day things of, of the joy that we experience and sometimes the death, the pain, the unmet dreams and expectations, whatever it is. And Paul would just continually put before us the thing that's different about this, and we sing about it over and over, they're singing about it here, is there 
is hope. There is hope in this one who understands our pain and our suffering because the image of the invisible God went through this as well, right? He empathizes. He went into that grave and he rose in glory. Interesting here that even Paul's language would reflect that, that Jesus again is the first fruits, that what happened to him will happen to us. And so it's not about whether there's pain. Pain is here or it is coming, but there is the hope of a future in Christ, following the one who shows us what God is like. And so this is what we hold on to. We hold on to the fact that we don't have to, we don't have to like stray or we don't have to like be looking in a million directions as to what God is like. We look at Jesus, but we also lean into the hope that he brings. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I just felt like even as we're singing this morning and, and in our responses that, again, some of us are just like, it's Sunday and it's partly sunny and it's almost May, which means like we'll be in shorts sometime soon and life is good, right? And there's other, others of us that are just, there's things that seem to overwhelm. It's okay. It's a reminder to us that God is with us in our pain. Our hope isn't in our own efforts. This is the beauty. It's not in our own kind of righteousness or self-righteousness. It's, I know this sounds old school maybe to some of us, but it is in Christ's work on our behalf. It's, it's about our allegiance, our faith in him as him being king of our lives. Brothers and sisters, there's hope. This is what Eastertide is all about. This is what it was for this little community in, in Colossae. And this is what reigns true for us today. And so that's what we're going to lean into this morning. Why don't you stand with me, actually? And we're going to take a couple minutes. The team is going to lead us. And um, you guys are awesome. Thank you. Is that for you? Perfect. But why don't you just close your eyes with me just for a moment and... Why don't we just open up our our lives and just receive the Spirit? And maybe you're thinking, wait a second, don't we have the Holy Spirit? Sure. But receive it as well, right? Receive the love and hope of God. Wait, don't don't we know the love and hope of God? Sure, but this morning, why don't we receive it? Jesus is among us by his spirit, leading, guiding. He's here. And he's here to do his work in his ministry that goes way beyond just talking about the Bible. And um, I just think, you know, as we do this this morning, as we come and we press in and we come and we walk towards the table, may it just be a reminder of God's love and hope and grace for us. So do your work, King Jesus. As we sing, as we move our bodies, as we take bread and juice together this morning, may it just be a reminder of what you've done for us, the hope that's in you. Jesus' name. Jesus' name.